Hey everyone, it's Anita, Jackie, and Lucas. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. So it's been a pretty hectic week for all of us. We're prepping for TechCrunch Disrupt, which is a huge event that I have only ever watched stuff about on TV and have <laughs> never been to in person. So I am super excited about that. I'm going to be interviewing Anatoly Yakovenko, the founder of Solana and CEO of Solana Labs, on stage at Disrupt. So yeah, Lucas and Jackie have some pretty cool interviews going on as well. So I'll... Yeah, it's going to be really fun to go to. I mean, this will be this will be my eighth TechCrunch Disrupt in San Francisco. And we've had a couple that have been not in person for the last couple of years because of COVID. So it'll be really fun to return to in-person events and just get to have those conversations with the energy of a crowd. I'm talking to Chris Dixon, who leads the crypto fund for Andreessen Horowitz. They've got lots of money, so I'll have lots of questions about how they're going to spend that lot of money. It'll be fun. Yeah. What's up with you, Jackie? <laughs> hey, guys. So I'm talking to some big peeps from FTX, Uniswap, <laughs> and Visa about the road ahead for crypto startups. I don't even know if I could really say FTX anymore because it was it is Brett Harrison, and he was the former president of FTX US, but now he's just an advisor there. So I guess I could still say FTX. But yeah, I'm looking forward to that. There's so much we could dive into there, and I guess you're going to have to be there to hear it. So yeah. Yeah, or be square. Um, <laughs> but no, it's been a big week for crypto news as well. So maybe we should just get right into it. Plenty to talk yeah. about. <laughs> yes. I will go first, guys. Let me take this. So basically <laughs> this week, Bloomberg reported that Yuga Labs is being probed by the SEC. It is worth noting as a little disclaimer that Yuga Labs is not currently being accused of any wrongdoing. The SEC's probe is just exploring what's happening inside for like a lack of better terms. And it doesn't necessarily mean it'll sue the company. But anyways, so who is Yuga Labs? You might ask. Some of you might know. Some of you might not. They're the parent company of Board Ape Yacht Club, Mutant Ape Yacht Club, CryptoPunks, and other big NFT projects. Those are some of the most well-known ones in the NFT world. And Yuga Labs also launched ApeCoin, which is the token associated with Board Apes. But anyways, the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, is looking into whether or not security laws were violated with Yuga Labs over unregistered offerings. And what does this really mean is the SEC is looking into whether or not NFTs, like literal NFTs, are similar to traditional equities and should be treated like stocks and follow the same disclosure rules. And it's also looking into the distribution of ApeCoin, the token given to NFT holders of the Board Ape Yacht Club and other NFTs related to it. It's also worth noting that the price of ApeCoin is down like 50% since the launch in March. So it's not really doing hot right now, but it is what it is. Uh, it's important I think because the SEC has been all over crypto markets. I mean, last week, Kim Kardashian paid like an over million dollar fine after settling a deal with the SEC for basically shilling. <laughs> Kim Innocent. Yeah, we, we had a good discussion on that. So check it out. Yeah, it was, I literally wrote my notes like you guys could listen to our last news episode for more details. And, you know, the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, has also said he views most digital assets as similar to securities. They have similar characteristics and he thinks they should be regulated by the SEC. So there's potential that selling a token like ApeCoin can open you up to the SEC because it's not just an NFT or profile picture artwork you're selling, but a token that has potential to be argued as a security in the eyes of SEC. I think it's also interesting that like NFTs are also being considered a potential security too, because that 
opens up a massive can of worms. Yeah, wait. So, yeah. so, so I was going to ask this, Jackie. Is this basically saying that like pictures of monkeys are securities? Like, is that <laughs> the equivalence that would happen if the SEC decides yes. that yeah. you guys did something wrong? I, You know, to me, I view it as like similar to other quote unquote crypto securities that have gotten dragged in the past. I think this would be a case by case basis. I don't think all NFTs will be considered one. And maybe someone could fact check me on this in a couple of years when the SEC <laughs> decides. Uh, obviously, I'm not a commissioner. I'm not a professional. But like, I think they really do it by a case-by-case basis. And like, we know Yuga Labs is not a small company. As I mentioned earlier, they own so many NFT projects. And this is another big company that the SEC could potentially make an example out of, kind of like what we saw with the $50 million penalty against BlockFi, Obviously, they're different companies doing different things, but Yuga Labs is like a well-known, prominent brand in the space. And given that Bored Apes are owned by, you know, anyone from like the lucky DGens to like celebrities like Snoop Dogg, yeah. Jimmy Fallon, and Justin Bieber. I don't know why those three names came to my mind, but they <laughs> you, did. You rattled them off. Good job. <laughs> I didn't know Bieber had an ape. That's interesting. Yeah, it used to be his profile picture. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> but I think like all in all, it could give Yuga Labs a slap on the wrist if they decide through this probe that, hey, what you're doing is wrong. But it could also just be like, okay, moving on. So yeah. we'll see, I guess. I fancy myself a little bit of a pictures of monkey expert. <laughs> Send Lucas all your monkey photos. <laughs> yeah, monkey pics is all I know. No, I mean, so this is this is a pretty fascinating thing. And there's a lot of gray area here. People have talked about NFTs being securities for a long time. And there are certain like elements of them that people have long thought are more security-like than others. So like there are a ton of different projects that have been like trying to do a bunch of different things. There's one that's also monkeys. I think they're 3D monkeys. Ooh. It's called Cyber Kongs. <laughs> And what they did was they made it so as long as you were holding it, you could generate banana coin um, just passively. So as long as you were holding onto this NFT, the wallet would get airdropped banana coin over time. And everyone who saw this was just like, okay, well, this is like clearly a security because it completely fits the Howie test. These people are buying this with future expectations of profit. This is exactly that. So there's stuff like that where it was like kind of clear. And then there were things that people were doing where they were buying a single NFT and then selling fractional shares of it, which is also likely a security. There are companies that do this today for non-NFT assets. Like there are some like investing apps where it's like buy a portion of a Ferrari or something. But in order to do that, they literally have to IPO the Ferrari, not on a stock exchange, but they have to make a securitized offering. So there's that element also. There are a bunch of different things you can do. I think a lot of people would say that Yuga, for the most part, has tried to walk a pretty fine line in like staying within the letter of the law. You know, when ApeCoin launched, they specifically very much did not do it officially through the Yuga Labs organization. A separate organization was created that had some people who owned Board Ape, some people who had partnered with Yuga, nobody from Yuga, the org itself. It was called ApeCoin DAO. And they're the ones who actually created ApeCoin on paper officially. So I think that was part of an effort to be like, hey, we know that like giving rewards of a currency to owners of the NFT could look kind of suspicious from a regulatory point of view. We're going to try to distance ourselves from this as much as possible. But at the end of the day, the ApeCoin distribution, which is one of the things SEC is looking at, like a huge portion of these tokens kind of went to the founding team at Board Apes, who are employees at Yuga. And yeah, some of like Yuga employees and investors. So 
that's a little sketch. Well, the one thing that struck me about that is like, isn't that kind of true of a lot of crypto projects where like the initial token distribution goes to the founders? I feel like that's been a point of controversy. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it's kind of hilarious because it's like all of these VCs who are backing these projects know that tokens are like pretty suspect and like could all be eventually regulated to hell and back. But they also still want them. They want the companies that they're buying equity in the startup themselves to create them because most of them are investing on like token safes. So they invest now, even though the company doesn't have a token, but they're doing it with the guarantee that down the road, they're going to get X amount of tokens from, you know, part of the total share. So it's a very complicated weave of like, don't do this, but do it, but don't you do it, have somebody else do it so you don't get in trouble and we don't get, you know, <laughs> sued. So it's very funny. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole maze. I feel like I need to mental map that out, like visually. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. The monkey, the monkey part, I feel like... They're apes. They're not monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to get like an angry letter. No, so I like a ton of NFT projects that I feel like have just done like vanilla, like art launches where they just have like 10K... I feel like those will probably be fine at the end of the day. Like Yuga has to justify a $4 billion startup valuation with their NFTs. And they've done some things that are a little bit more on the bold side. Like they're trying to build a metaverse. They sold several hundred million dollars worth of digital land sales, which I'm sure the SEC might also be looking right. at. And they're doing all this stuff and like they have to justify this, this sky high valuation. So they're working through all that stuff. But I mean, like smaller NFT projects, if you're just selling a bunch of art. I feel like I feel like that'll ultimately be safe, but what do I know? I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, I know we we did talk about the Howey test and the implications of that a couple episodes ago, so we'll drop the link for that in the show notes if you guys want to check that out too. I have to like refresh myself on the four-part <laughs> test because honestly, it's so hard to like conceptualize what might actually be enforced and what won't. It's written so vaguely. Yes, it is a journey. I'm going to be curious to see how this goes. I mean, this one, we've seen the SEC potentially investigating a lot of different crypto firms. This one is like, this one's pretty fascinating. And I think a lot of people just don't have a clear idea of which direction it could go. And any decision the SEC makes here will have pretty massive ramifications. So in uh, keeping with tradition and trying to check all the boxes in a bingo board that one of our lovely (laughs) listeners made for us, I do want to talk about a hack. Two hacks, actually, that happened this past week that were both DeFi hacks worth hundreds of millions of dollars each. The first one happened on Binance's smart chain last Thursday, and it was a bridge hack. And we've seen bridge hacks before, right? Like this was basically a bridge is what allows the transfer of tokens between different types of blockchains. And a bridge was what led to the Axie Infinity hack earlier this year. It's what led to the Nomad hack as well. And in this case, it was a a chain associated with Binance. And $570 million is what this hacker tried to take. Essentially, what happened is that the validators were able to respond pretty quickly to this situation. So they were able to prevent those losses of $570 million. They kind of halted withdrawals and the hacker wasn't actually able to take all $570 million out. They took about $100 million ultimately. And so it was good in terms of, you know, the validators responding and locking down the chain, but bad in terms of the idea of bridges. I know like bridges have been something <laughs> that Vitalik has blogged about before, um, Vitalik of Ethereum, and he was sort of talking about how bridges can be easily explained and everyone sort of knows this. Like They're pretty sus, and I think we can expect to see more bridge hacks going forward, unfortunately. The one kind of interesting thing about this to me, like the, the BNB hack specifically, was that you know no one actually had money stolen directly from them. The way that this worked was essentially the hackers used the bridge somehow to like 
mint their own tokens. And their Binance chief comms officer ended up comparing this to basically like a bunch of thieves breaking into the U.S. Federal Reserve, printing their own money, and then walking away with it. So it's not like anyone lost money directly except the company. But yeah, just kind of a weird, like strange situation. Yeah, it's funny because I'm pretty sure it was last week's episode or maybe the week before that we were just talking about like how hacks were down for the third quarter. And then, of yes. course, Q4 <laughs> yeah, came know, in hot, know. you know. You jinxed it. <laughs> I know. Well, let me hit you with the other hack yeah. because that was yeah, also please. a big one. <laughs> Mango Markets. And this is a Solana-based DeFi protocol. And there was a hack. It was worth around $100 million in this case as well. And basically what happened was like once this hack happened... A blockchain auditing firm called OtterSec was, you know, sort of giving their post-game analysis of like what they thought had happened. And this actually resulted from a vulnerability that Mango Markets had said could be a possibility in the past. Like they sort of knew this vulnerability existed on their protocol and that it was exploited. So, you know, at a high level, what happened, the attacker was basically able to manipulate the collateral they had on the platform because there's not a lot of users in a lot of these DeFi protocols. So one or two like individuals or whales can really move the market. So this hacker was able to spike up the value of their collateral and then use that to take out huge loans from the treasury of Mango Markets. And once they took out those loans, the treasury was essentially drained. Like there were no coins left. There was no liquidity. And what I thought was really strange about this hack in particular was the governance aspect. Because once they took out this, you know, around $100 million, then basically the hacker or someone who's claiming that they were the hacker, right, voted on the Mango DAO platform, which oversees the whole protocol. And they voted for their own solution, their own proposal on how to <laughs> go about like recovering the protocol from this hack. And the thing that they were hung up on, if this person really is the hacker, as they say they are, is that they wanted Mango Markets, the protocol, to repay some bad debt that they assumed in June. The reason that Mango Markets assumed that bad debt in June was to bail out a different Solana DeFi project called Solend, which is a whole other can of worms. But, you know, the thing that stood out to me in all of this is just the kind of insanity of the fact that someone was able to steal a bunch of tokens and then use those very same tokens to vote in the governance protocol that runs the DeFi protocol. Like, it's not just limited anymore to taking money from exchanges. When it comes to crypto hacks, it seems like this has implications beyond the money itself. It, it has implications for the governance and for how these groups are actually running and making decisions. Yeah, I mean, generally with DAOs also, like, it's not like there's, it's not like Congress or something where Congress is in session and they have like a very like specific cadence for when things are voted on. If someone has a lot of governance tokens or something, they can brute force things through a DAO pretty quickly if, you know, this person I think had like 23 million tokens or something. So they were able to just like drop that into the yes column of the vote. And if there's a certain time limit on the vote, it doesn't give the honest actors in the community that much time to kind of rally around. In this case, it kind of seems like he drained the liquidity from the market. So whoever this hacker was kind of is going to be tough for them to lose. Uh, this was a very stylish hack, not to give too much uh, too much <laughs> credence to the thief, but yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and this is kind of the crazy part about crypto. Like, if this all sounds super confusing to whoever's listening, like I'm confused too. I think a lot of the crypto community <laughs> is. There was someone on Twitter who actually noted, or they saw allegedly on chain that the person who perpetrated the hack was also funded $5.5 million worth of crypto from FTX. So now Sam Bankman-Fried is involved and he's like, okay, we're going to investigate on our end and try to figure out who actually did this. So that was like another little dimension to this. But 
you know, on the note of like this being a pretty sophisticated hack, I think what's been really interesting to observe in the crypto space has been bug bounties, which is something that I learned about recently, which is essentially when a hack occurs, then the exchange that was hacked will offer some sort of reward to the hacker to basically return the funds. And so in that sense, there's always an incentive to take money, right? Like instead of just going and letting a network know, hey, like I saw this vulnerability in your system, it could be exploited, you guys should be careful. Like there's always going to be an incentive for the hacker to just go and hack and then take the money and then make money in return for returning it. Well, there are white hat hackers and there's black hat hackers. It's like such a a mouthful, but basically the white hat hackers are the bug bounty side of things where they do it out of the goodness of their heart, I would argue. I don't know. Obviously, they get paid a certain amount for finding like inefficiencies in code or whatever it may be. And then black hat ones don't even participate in the bug bounty programs. They either keep the money or they'll like take a, a certain amount in exchange to give some back. And I think it's kind of interesting to see the development on both sides because, I don't know, I'm not a villain, but I could see why <laughs> black hat hackers don't want to be a good person when they have that. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> I'm not a villain, but... Do, do you have something you need to confess to, yeah. Jackie? <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't know how to code and I have not stolen millions or anything for that matter. <laughs> I think it's an interesting conversation, though, because a company like Amazon or Apple or something, they spend such huge amounts of money on security for their overall platform. And like when hacks happen, it affects them in very concrete ways. So they have money set aside for bug bounty programs. With DeFi, like shared liquidity pools or something like that, it's a question of how much does each incremental user want to invest in the security of the platform? Because it's not like the, you know, they they don't necessarily have any money just from, you know, operating costs. Like the community has to decide how much money they want to invest in these bug bounty programs to kind of ensure the network is strong. So I think like with Mango or something like that, you have to decide in advance, like, are we going to fund bug bounties as a DeFi pool? You know, it's easier with ones that have like a big venture back startup that are kind of like in their corner. Because I remember I went to some conference a few months ago and I talked to some white hat hacker who had discovered this massive vulnerability in this layer two that had it been discovered could have wiped out the entire thing. But they took it to the company and they got two million dollars for it, which like. Good person. Exactly. That's, that's you know, they, good incentive. Right. Yeah. It's a good in- incentive. And like, sure, they could have gotten hundreds of millions by being a black hat hacker, but then they have all this money and it's illegal and they have to kind of like look over their shoulder. They have to launder and, and it. Exactly. A huge they have pain to live a ass. Breaking Bad lifestyle. It's very <laughs> bad for them. But, you know, they can go legit. And I think that DeFi hasn't exactly figured out how to incentivize going legit for, you know, technically minded people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just honestly, it always comes back to the argument of security and how important it is and how early on the security and infrastructure towards that is in crypto. Because until those things are improved, like we're going to continue to see hacks again and again, because these things aren't bulletproof and people are going to keep finding cracks in the system, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah, the last thing I wanted to note was just that we still don't know who the hacker was or who the hackers were in either of these situations. And in past bridge hacks, like with Axie, we knew it was a North Korean state-backed group. So it'll be interesting to see you know, what the motivations were, especially with the Mango situation, knowing that this person is sort of holding the entire protocol ransom <laughs> to get an outcome that they want. In- yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. So switching gears a little bit, we can talk about the metaverse. This week, Facebook, now Meta, had its MetaConnect conference where they had a bunch of different announcements around their plans for the metaverse. 
you know, I watched it for about an hour and a half with some other people at TechCrunch, and we're making fun of a lot of it for <laughs> the vast majority <laughs> of the time. Thank you for your service, Lucas. <laughs> yeah. Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> seems to pretty much be unilaterally pushing this new vision for the company. Meta's not doing super well, even relative to the broader markets. Their stock price is down quite a bit, and it kind of coincides with this big push that they've had that they're going to kind of essentially become a games company through the Metaverse platform that they have built for VR, which all of that sounds pretty like futuristic and nerdy for a what was once $1 trillion company to stake their entire future on. But Mark and the VR team at Meta had a lot of different announcements they made. The big one was that they released this new VR mixed reality device called the Quest Pro. It is expensive. It's $1,499. And their last device they introduced was $299 at launch. So well, since Jackie's a villain, she, maybe she can yeah. afford that. We're going to have to get some of Jackie's mango hat money that she oh took, but she hasn't told anyone about yet to get some of these Please don't out. come for me. <laughs> to the SEC, this is a joke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, they launched this really expensive headset. They partnered with Microsoft. Like, they're talking about this being a little bit more of an enterprise-focused device. They want people to use it to replace their laptop, yada, yada, yada. I think at the end of the thing, like, a lot of people who are metaverse believers or just believers in VR in general kind of didn't think that they made a very convincing argument. And this is their one big public facing keynote of the year on their vision as a company. So I don't know. The reason this matters to crypto is that a lot of companies, especially in the NFT space, have talked about the metaverse as if it's this big inevitable future. And they've kind of pointed to Facebook betting its future on the metaverse as a reason why their company is a seed stage startup is in good company. But basically, when you look at what their actual vision looks like, and like, if you think it's realistic, what they're planning, I don't know, I wouldn't have watched this thing and felt good about my company betting on the same vision that Zuckerberg was looking at here. It was it was a little wonky. They talked for 10 minutes about adding legs to their avatars, uh, which seemed not so not so earth shattering. <laughs> yeah, not the biggest news. But I was actually chatting with Amanda Silberling from our team. And she cover some of this stuff too. And she made like a really interesting point about, you know, it's possible that like meta being so deep in the in the metaverse and like in VR, for example, like they've almost made this stuff chooky. Like it's not cool anymore because meta is the one doing it. Yeah. So yeah, like the association of certain companies in crypto and in like actual Web3 now looking at meta trying to build this metaverse, like it looks discouraging because it's almost like so embarrassing to align yourself with them in any way. Yeah, I'm curious, like, both of your opinions on, like, what do you think is needed for the metaverse, both in the terms of meta's description or creation of it and beyond that, what we're seeing in the crypto community? Like, what do you think is needed for it to be compelling, especially because, like, right now, like you said, it's like chuggy. It feels like VR to an extent. It doesn't feel like the future. And honestly, like, I feel like it's not as cool as they want it to be, the people who are creating metaverse-related products. Yeah, I mean, I think a big problem is that everyone's just going for the biggest slice of the pie possible right now. Like, they want to be the town square where all of these people build experiences in this world. But I guess if I think of, like, what actually the metaverse means, it like it means all these different games just feel a lot deeper and more important. So like maybe if you go into Grand Theft Auto or something, there is a cryptocurrency or something that you're spending in game that's like pegged to something. And it's just like a deeper economy, or it's just a more immersive experience versus what Meta is going for just feels like they want to recreate Roblox 
and then figure out a way to make billions of dollars off of it. It's just lame. Like, it doesn't look cool at all. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and like, not to be a giant hardo and like gatekeep crypto or anything, but I feel like all these metaverses <laughs> that don't actually utilize the blockchain, like, shouldn't be calling themselves metaverses. Like, that's my hot take because yeah, no, it's not it's, really an innovation. It's a marketing word. It's like a marketing scheme. I remember when they said meta last year, Literally every company put Metaverse in their PR like release, like everyone. It was to the point where I was like, how are you even related to the Metaverse? You just wanted that word in there. Yeah, if you're not on chain, like <laughs> GTFO, like honestly. <laughs> I just, I feel mad at myself for not taking this opportunity to go be chief Metaverse officer somewhere because I feel like every company was all of a sudden started hiring for it. This was just like, what does that job even mean? <laughs> yeah, I think that like, Meta's putting itself in a situation where it's not going to even be able to afford making crypto bets at this point because it's so all this stuff looks so suspect and like no one thinks that they're cool. Imagine if Meta during this thing had like talked about NFTs, which they didn't say anything about NFTs or crypto at all during this keynote, even though they've announced some integrations with NFTs on Facebook and Instagram that are going to be rolling out later. You know, they announced like an avatar store that's coming up. Maybe that integrates NFTs in some capacity, but they're not going to be able to refer to those things by name because people already think that this thing is so like chronically uncool. And like Mark Zuckerberg, for God knows what reason, has decided that he wants to be the face of this push. And he's not a very cool guy, I will say. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. You are dragging him, Lucas. I know. He's got... Rightfully so, yeah. He's got other things going for him, but I don't think anyone would say he's like, he's a cool dude. I don't think any tech CEO is particularly cool dude, but like maybe Elon Musk could pull it off for his particular corner of the internet. <laughs> All right, so usually this is part of the episode where we talk a little bit about what we're working on next week. I think the answer for all three of us is the exact same. We are gearing up for TechCrunch Disrupt. We've got a lot of great crypto coverage. We've got a lot of awesome guests and investors who are coming. So we're pretty psyched about how it's going to go. We all think that you should probably come get tickets and come to this because it's going to be pretty sweet. We've got a special coupon code for y'all. It is REACT, R-E-A-C-T, and you can get 15% off tickets, excluding online and expo tickets. But yeah, enter that code and come join us and come say hi. We'll be back every week with the top news on the crypto ecosystem. Catch us on Tuesdays for interviews with experts in the Web3 space. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and the stories we talked about can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us at Chain underscore Reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Anita Ramaswamy, along with my co-hosts, Lucas Matney and Jackie Melanick. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.